Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. tells us in John chapter 8 that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So I want that to just settle in for a minute in your brain and heart and mind. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we're going to kicking off this new series. We're in the Lenten season now and we're going to think together a little bit and I'm not sure that any of us could have seen it coming. I'm not sure that any of us are fully comfortable with saying the words but we related to it differently just a few years ago. In fact, uh, we used to use this word in relationship to a certain character on Sesame Street and we said of that character he had googly eyes. Remember that? And now we use that word in sentences, full sentences. It has become a part of our vocabulary. I Googled it. (laughs) I was Googling that the other day. And all of this Googling has led us into really um, kind of a different world. I I remember when I first came to pastor here uh, that uh, my offices were here in this building in the other corner now where the nursery is and And I'd be writing a sermon, and I'd say, man, I need to do some research. I used to leave my office, walk down a couple of blocks to the library, and look things up in the card catalog, and find actual books. Now, I'll tell you this. You were getting shortchanged in those days. Because what it took to get information was hard. It was time-consuming. And now I can Google something, and I have more information at my fingertips in seconds than I could have done in weeks of research. I can pick and choose. I can look at headings and go, I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that. I've got 12,000 hits on this thing that I just asked for. And so what is happening in that is there isn't an awesome load of information coming at you and coming at me. We are swimming in information. And that information is impacting us in some significant ways. Uh, You know, people say knowledge is power. Well, that's true. (laughs) The question is, what kind of power is it? And so it starts to drive a few questions. And one of those big questions is, whose knowledge is power? Where's the knowledge coming from? Who's saying the words? And I don't know about you, but it is harder and harder to discern who's telling the truth. And just because the information is coming at us doesn't mean that it's valid or real or that it's unbiased. In fact, one of the great decisions we have to make as individuals, as consumers of all of this information is where will we tune in? What will we listen to? What is the source of our information? How much work are we willing to do? Because understand that when Jesus is speaking, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How free do you feel? Because these things are related. If I'm feeding my heart, my mind, my spirit information that is untrue, it's going to tie me up and bind me up in ways 
that debilitate me. And I'm going to start believing things about myself that I have no business believing. And so it matters where the source of information comes from. It seems to me that uh, when you stop and you think about it, this is a big sociological phenomenon. You mind if we just talk sociology for a second? Not that you have a choice, but... This is a little-known fact, but uh, in, in my high school years, I worked at a newspaper, and uh, I started in the circulation department, like most good newspaper men do, you know, and, uh, but I worked not really delivering papers. I worked actually in the circulation department at the newspaper, and I, I, I was working in a very small town. Uh, it was a daily. Everybody know that, what that means? And that, when I think about that, I think we were distinguished because there were other area newspapers that were weeklies. Imagine this, that for a group of people, they were spending one week compiling a newspaper that was going to convey the news to their constituency. Now over at our big, big time newspaper, the Daily, the Daily Sentinel, if you want to know, we were putting out a Daily and once a week, we put out the Sunday paper. That's a big paper. That's got a lot of sections. I don't know if you know this, but when you're doing a big weekly like the Sunday paper, it's all printed a long time before Sunday. You all know that, right? There's just one section that waits until Saturday night. Just one. Just one. Just one. Well, the sports are actually listed on the front page. So here's what happens. You have a lot of time to discern what ought to get in the paper what shouldn't it? Some of us here remember this. You used to watch the news at night before you went to bed. Because that half hour was the half hour of information that was going to tell you what was going on in the world. And if something happened between the time you woke up in the morning and the time the news came on at 10 or 11, depending on if you were in Central Time or Eastern or Pacific Time, because it comes on in Central Time, it comes on 10 p.m. 10 p.m. Did you guys just have this announcement? 11 p.m.? It's 11 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Did you have that little event? It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Because the anchor of life was the 10 o'clock or the 11 o'clock news. We all were there. Parents, do you know where your kids are right now? Find them. And if something happened in between those news cycles, they interrupted regular programming to bring you a special bulletin. Remember that chilling thing? We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. And your heart would go, oh, no. <laughs> For a lot of us in this room, we learned tragedy. And we learned about wonderful things through a news bulletin that interrupted our normal life. And it got our attention. We're told sociologically that because now we have a 24-hour news cycle, meaning we are reporting news constantly, that there is no time for discernment between what should get told and what shouldn't get told. And that good news actually takes time to cultivate. That good news rarely comes in a small soundbite. That you have to tell where it came from and how the seeds were planted and what happened and how it was nurtured and what the result was. And often it takes a long time for the fruit to be born in a good news story. But that doesn't fit the cycle that we're in. What does fit the cycle that we're in is negative news. It is easy to report negative news because it happens once and it's done. 
and it is simple to tell, and it is fast, and there is no lack of it, so it fuels what's happening around us. Now, I'm not critiquing the way the news stations work. We're the people that demanded all this 24-hour news. <laughs> I am saying you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, and we live in a culture that is bombarding us with information and with negative messages about the people around us. And listen, I want to just tell you this. It's changing our psychology. It's changing how we see each other. It's changing how we see the world. It's changing the level of fear and anxiety each one of us carry around. And it's so amazing to me because the culture is saying, why are people depressed? Why are they more depressed than they've... We have more than we've ever had and we're more depressed than we've ever been. Yes, because depression is still about your perspective. It's still about how you see the world. It's still about what's happening inside of you. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter what's happening in the exterior. What you think about the world and what you think about yourself has everything to do with your attitude towards the world. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it's terribly difficult to discern which information is true and which information is not true. And for a lot of us, we simply come to the point that we listen to things we already believe. We listen to things we already think. We listen to things we already like. We shut out things that contradict our perspectives. So we're not sure what's true and what's not. Amen? It's just a problem. As all of this stuff comes at us, we are uh, overwhelmed by information. This, this information hits us in three distinct ways. Number one, we swim around in it. It is very difficult to keep up with all of the information at our fingertips. Number, you know, I, I always marvel because just in the 30-whatever years that I've been preparing sermons, there was a time that you would be like, I, I just need more information. I need more stuff. This sermon's going to be 20 minutes long. And they need to be at least 40. <laughs> that was funnier than that. <laughs> it was like a painful groan, not a laugh. <laughs> now, really, honestly, you're spending enormous amounts of time going, well, we can't talk about that. Well, we there's just too much, and we have to pare it down into something that's manageable. Number two, our life is filled with oughts. We know so much now that there are a tyranny of shoulds, a tyranny of oughts. So, uh, you know, the benefit right now is we all know stuff. I mean, we know, we know our, our ideal body type, our ideal body weight. We know uh, dietary information, not that it's all true, but we know it. We know stuff about, I mean, my kids who are raising my grandkids, oh, man, they have oughts and shoulds that we were just blissfully ignorant, amen? I mean, they know, there are people telling them everything about their children and how to raise them and what to do. We grew up just going, well, I don't know. I mean, who did you ask? You called your mom. Oh, you're doing fine. Put a little whiskey on their gums. They'll go to sleep. <laughs> Amen? It's a different day. <laughs> Give them some Benadryl. They'll sleep the whole time. <laughs> that applies there. I mean, if you want to refinance your house. 
There's going to be a whole, there's oughts and shoulds, and, and, and this leads us to the third point, and that is it damages our self-image because we have a million points of comparison. We didn't used to have that, but we do now. We have a million points of comparison. We can measure ourselves against the oughts and shoulds of millions and millions of people. And here's the thing that's so crazy. If you want to be famous, just start a podcast. I mean, you have to be good, but the potential is there. You don't need an agent. You don't have to sign a contract. Get a YouTube channel. In fact, if you want an agent and you want to sign a contract, you better have a YouTube channel because that's who they sign. People who have millions of viewers on YouTube, that's who gets the gig. What are the qualifications to start a YouTube channel? Zero. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be connected to something. You don't have to be an expert. But you can change the culture if people listen to you. And people do. How do you become discerning? And it damages our self-image. We have a million points of comparison, very few of which are really authoritative in any way. You take our modern culture, and we are, we are making massive decisions based on very poor information. And it's damaging to us. Barbara Markway uh, wrote an article uh, talking about this struggle of self-acceptance. And she talks about the specific ways in which this information is damaging to us. And I think it's so good. She's a psychologist. I just want to read you her three points that I think matter. Three responses to all of the information. Number one, we think, based on this, if we punish ourselves, we'll change. Accepting ourselves unconditionally is difficult because we must give up the fantasy that if we punish ourselves enough with negative thoughts, we'll change. It's as if we think we can whip ourselves into shape by saying things like, I'm weak for feeling any anxiety. There's something wrong with me if I don't have lots of friends and an active social life. I'm a loser, I'm weird, I'm boring. We cling to the belief that by berating ourselves, we'll transform. But as I've learned from experience, this strategy doesn't work well. In fact, the more we yell at ourselves to buck up and snap out of it and get tough, the more anxious we become. The frightened little child inside of us doesn't respond favorably to such a mean dictator. Instead, we need to find ways to accept the anxious parts of ourselves to hold that part by the hand and gently say, you're okay. Number two, we don't believe we deserve self-acceptance. The messages we receive from our culture, others, and ourselves become deeply ingrained, in part due to their sheer repetition. Because these negative messages bombard us and because we never stop to question whether they're true, we internalize the feeling that we are indeed defective. We don't believe we're deserving of acceptance, at least not right now. Similar to a woman who puts her life on hold until she loses 30 pounds, we put conditions on self-acceptance and we say things to ourselves like, maybe I'll feel okay about myself if I go through with this presentation, when I'm through with this presentation next month. Maybe I'll feel okay about myself if I get up the nerve to ask that person in class for a date. Maybe I'll feel okay about myself if I get that promotion. What time, types of conditions do you place on yourself? Do you accept yourself as you are, or do you feel you must change before you can accept yourself? Remember, acceptance doesn't mean you're giving up and not trying anymore. In contrast, it means you're looking at yourself and your situation realistically. Of course, there are aspects of my life that I want to work on. I always want to be a better person. But as I keep relearning, 
it's, not, it's much easier to work toward change if I'm not wasting energy criticizing myself. Number three, we believe we are giving up control. Another barrier to self-acceptance and perhaps the most difficult to overcome is the belief that we're exerting some sort of meaningful control when we fight against something. It's a Western way of thinking and we have to fight to conquer. In contrast, Eastern philosophy emphasizes going with the flow, moving along, getting in line. It seems we're giving up control and it feels like a terrible loss, but in reality we're not losing, we're gaining tremendous strength. So my question to you this morning is, where are your you turned in? If I would just ask you to be mindful of yourself and of your journey, what are you tuned? What are the messages you're sending yourself? What are you saying to yourself? I mean, if I just stopped and you just said, I'm going to think about my thinking. I'm going to think about what messages I say to myself over and over. Because it matters what you're saying. It matters to the thing to which you are tuned in. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, our brains really latch on to negative and they really shed positive. It takes discipline to grab the positive and ignore the negative. Most of us are great receptors. In fact, we're told that our brains kind of have Teflon when it comes to positivity. <laughs> that, that, like, like, I don't know how many of you go through this, but, but when someone talks to you and they say about four positive things and one negative thing, which thing really sticks with you? You know, somebody can say a lot of really good things, but if they have one negative to say, it just sort of takes us down. What are you thinking about? What are you telling yourself? It's important that we understand that there is a different message. There is a biblical message. There is a godly message. There is truth, and truth can set you free. And so I want to just make this point, and then we're going to jump into Ephesians, from which we're doing this whole series. But, but if I were to survey the crowd and say, I believe God has biblical truth that can set us free, we would all say, oh, Lord. <laughs> if I were to say that God has biblical truth that can set us free, we would all say, Amen. but we wouldn't all agree on what it is. I mean, we could say, okay, so what does God say? How long would that take in a room like this? I mean, we, you, you know, it'd be quick. It'd be quick to go, God is love. Yes. God is for me, not against me. Yes. We would all go, yeah. But pretty quick after that, we'd be like, well. Because even those of us who call ourselves Christian and those of us who say the Bible is a source of our truth, we don't all agree on what that truth is. And I just point that out at the beginning of this to, 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 just to give you the sense of complexity of the need to tune in. That this isn't just about an intellectual conversation. This is about tuning in to the discerning spirit of God that speaks words to us through his living word. And that's the challenge of this season of Lent. It's not just to hear me talk and list things. It's about tuning in to a spirit that can help us be discerning about what the Word says and about what you need to hear at your spot in your life right now with what you're going through. And I believe in that power and I believe in that happening in each of our lives. Ephesians is unique among all of Paul's letters. Uh, Paul spent an enormous amount of time in Ephesus. 
He strategically chose it. Ephesus was located in what is now modern Turkey. It was considered uh, uh, Asia at the time, and, and uh, it, it was a port city off the Mediterranean. Uh, it co- connected to the Casper River, which connected into the Aegean Sea. So, so it was a thoroughfare for trade from west to east and east to west, and, and a very strategic city. Um, one of the most beautiful cities of the first century, and Paul spent three years there because he understood its strategic value and its importance, and the church thrived there. It was one of the great, great churches of the first century. And so it's a unique letter because now Paul writing, it's a, you know, from prison, he's writing and he has no agenda in the letter to Ephesians. Uh, uh, most of his letters are addressing a problem. He's, he's writing because someone has come and said, hey, this is what's going on in the church, and he's writing. The, the letter of Ephesians is a letter that he writes simply to talk about God's purpose, simply to talk about our mission and purpose in being a part of the kingdom of God. And so it's a very unique letter. There's no axe to grind. There's no social. There's no cultural thing going on that he's grading on. He's simply talking about big view, who are we, who is God, and what's going on. And that's why we're taking the series from this letter because it speaks to us at such important level, levels about what's going on. He's really talking about God's eternal purposes and what he's doing in the world. So here's a message that I'd like for you to hear this morning. You are chosen. You are chosen. I hope when you leave and somebody says, what was the sermon about? You can sum it up, right? You are chosen. There's four powerful truths that are coming out of this thing. Now, you should know as we set off to read this that this is some uh, fascinating stuff that's going down here. And uh, so we're going to give it a shot. Here it is. You you should remember that verses 3 through 14, everything I'm about to read for Paul is one sentence. This is the longest sentence in the Bible. Now, we've cleaned it up in our translations, but you should know this. Paul has a habit when he's writing, especially when he becomes passionate, to have run-on sentences. He has many run-on sentences. It's one of the phenomenons when you study his work is you're like, okay, this is... We're still in the same sentence. This is a monster compared to all of his run-on sentences. This is his longest run-on sentence. Three through 14, one sentence. Now, the reason I point that out to you That means that he's not just writing you technical information. He is at a moment of passion. His scribe, his amanuenses, is writing so fast that he can barely keep up with the passion that's spilling out of Paul. You get the image of what's happening here? Okay, because I I want you to be sure you understand contextually that he's he's not just intellectually giving you something. He's opening this letter and he's pouring out his heart so much so that he can't even breathe for a comma. One sentence, here it is. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely has freely given us in the one he loves in him. 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity all to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now that's a sentence. (laughs) I see four things that I encourage you at the opening of Lent to tune into. Number one, you are chosen. Bob Benson is one of my favorite authors and writers. Passed away some years ago. And he used to tell the story that you know, as a person who writes and speaks, he, he would find himself in some isolated corner of the planet at some retreat, talking to a bunch of people he doesn't know, out in some wilderness somewhere. And he would constantly ask himself, how did I end up here? Why am I here? And he would say, you know, I'm a homebody. I, I, I don't like traveling. I don't like being out. I like to be at home. And right now I know at home my family is gathering. They're having a meal They're enjoying each other. My grandkids are there. And I'm asking myself, why am I here? I've been here before, and I've asked myself before, and I know I don't want to do this, and I know I don't want to be here, and I can't figure out why I keep saying yes and ending up here and having this conversation with myself over and over. And he said, "It, it finally, when I think about it and analyze it, it comes down to this. I like being chosen. I like the fact that somebody wants me to come, and so I say yes. That's a very honest little piece of work, isn't it? But this is true. We all like being chosen. And we'll do crazy things because somebody chooses us. Because we like being chosen. And I don't know what, you know, we could debate a lot about the theology of this passage. We could talk about, you know, Calvinism versus Wesleyanism. And we could get all lost in the debate, which, by the way, I keep wanting to remind you. John Wesley said, I'm within a hair's breadth of believing everything Calvin ever wrote. We're the ones who've polarized these two things. But if we do that, we miss the point. You are chosen. You are chosen. God chose to make you, and he chose to use you, and he chose to love you, and he chose to redeem you. He chose you. You are chosen. I I don't care what messages you're getting somewhere else in the world. I, I don't care about what God according to his word, and you don't have to believe this story, but this story says that you're not an accident. You're not a random event in the history of humankind. You're a child of the creator, gifted in the way God intended for you to be, purposed for his intentions in the world through you. Now, I know that the message of the culture says you've got to be successful and you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to acquire wealth, you've got to become known. Those messages great in us. We all want to be chosen. We want to be chosen and to be successful and be honored and be lifted up and feel purposeful and fulfilled. But the scripture says you are chosen and you are chosen for the purposes of God. And that's a good place to rest. 
That's a good place to take a deep breath when you wake up in the morning. And to think about this reality that the God of the universe chose for you to be made, chose for you to be present. You are His child. It's not based on your personality. It's not based on all your talents. It's not based on your body type. It's not based on your story. It's not based on your experiences. You're chosen. You. You. Number two, you're redeemed. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This God who chooses you also redeems. He redeems us. Now, now what that means is, in spite of our failures, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our sin, in spite of our bad decisions, in spite of our failure, in spite of our weirdness, in spite of our quirks, in spite of the messes we've made, God still chooses you and still chooses me. Redemption means that he didn't just choose you once. He just keeps choosing you over and over. That in the middle of the most difficult parts of our journey, God says, listen, I didn't just choose you to be made and choose you to be my child. I am choosing to walk with you in your life and in your journey and to be redemptive as you struggle. Now, that's not a message you're going to get anywhere else. That's not a message that the world tells you. The world will tell you a different message. Well, you messed up. You're out. Isn't it awesome in this imperfect, crazy world that we have entered into cancel culture? Well, when you were 27, you made a mistake. You're out. Lord, I made a million mistakes before. Aren't you glad that you didn't grow up when social media was around? <laughs> we made messes and nobody knows. There's no video. Nobody had a phone. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> you will never know what we've done. <laughs> he redeems us. He, he, he just, just chooses. He chooses to stay with us. I mean, every time I fall down, he just picks me up. All right. That hurt, didn't it? I wouldn't do that again if I were you. <laughs> you know, you will, but I wouldn't. <laughs> He just keeps dusting us off and picking. John Wesley said, I, I'm going to fall. I'm going to fall again and again, but I want to fall facing God, not away from him. And I don't believe God says, okay, well, you fell. We're going to go back to the beginning. All right, try the obstacle course again. <laughs> no, he picks me up right here. All right, you've come a long way. <laughs> just keep going. Just keep going. He redeems Paul says, he chooses, he redeems. Number three, he informs us. He gave us all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will. There's two great words here, Sophia and Pronesis. Sophia means giving you wisdom that satisfies the hunger of your mind. He lavished on us wisdom, the kind of knowledge that satisfies the hunger of our mind, and Pronesis a practical kind of application that gives us a way of applying this knowledge to real life. He blessed us with Sophia and Pronesis. He informed us. He doesn't say, listen, it's all about blind faith. There is a place for faith, amen? But he says, I'm going to feed you with wisdom that satisfies the hunger of your mind. Listen, here's the problem. God has given us this amazing truth, but we struggled to believe it. 
We struggle to put our faith and trust in it because we become so cynical. <laughs> we become so cynical about information. We hear the gospel and it goes, well, it sounds really good, but I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know if I should live like that. I don't want to be tricked. I don't want to be fooled. I'm going to go watch the news. I'm going to scan Facebook. Amen? It's counterintuitive. I love it when people go, well, our faith is just, you know, it's all based on faith. It's, there's no re Listen, I'm, I'm not just saying I'm going to choose you and redeem you. I'm going to fill up your brain, too. I'm going to give to you the Sophia, the wisdom that satisfies the hunger of your mind. But you're going to have to get this thing tuned into something that allows you to connect with truth. Because you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But there are so many things that will enslave you. So many things that will tie us up. That will debilitate us. Are we thinking about our thinking? We're invited in this Lenten season to tune in. The last one is this, you are promised. In him you were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works in you, everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were put for, to put our first hope in Christ might be the first fruits of the new life, of the new labor. He says in this final thing, you've been promised. You've been promised. And he's put his spirit in you as a deposit guaranteeing your future inheritance. This letter and this passage is talking about this. He's bringing things together. The promises he's bringing... Now, he's going to come to this moment very shortly in which he says, here's the deal, because there is one God, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God who is in you all. And, there, and where he's going now is he's, going to, he's starting to build the argument. It's coming together because that, that unites us is greater than what divides us. That's where he's going. Now, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about your relationships. Paul's saying, listen, it's not just that he chose you and redeemed you and walks with you and picks you up. It's not just that he informs you. He's also bringing things together. You got broken relationships in your story? God is in the business of breaking down walls and pulling things together. He's writing to this incredibly cosmopolitan city where there's all kinds of racial issues and class issues and economics. And, and he's saying, God is tearing down. There's a little church there. And when they walk into that church, there's no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, men or women. There's just children of God. And he's, he's setting this hope in us. In fact, this spirit is a deposit in you guaranteeing this inheritance. And it's going to take some time. But he's bringing things together. When's the last time you woke up in the morning and said, I think my life is coming together. I think it's coming together. I think it's looking good. I think things are on the upswing. I think the culture's going to be okay. I think the world's going to be okay. I think God is going to be on the throne and he's going to do his work. And I think he's, play, he's placed his spirit in me as a deposit guaranteeing this outcome. And so I got to lean into that spirit because that's the place that's safe. That's the place that sends me the message that I'm chosen that I'm redeemed, that he fills my mind with things that are true and satisfying and teaches me how to apply them into my daily life where things are so confusing sometimes. I'm promised. I am promised. I am promised. I am promised. Listen, there's a lot of messages coming at you. 
There's a lot of things that are bombarding each of us. And the question as we enter into this Lenten season is what are you hearing? To what are you listening? Where are you tuned to? The prayer, the hope, the dream, the passion is that during this season, we just focus our attention right here on God's word. We just narrow it down into his spirit. We invite his spirit to be discerning in us and teaching us. But we're going to open ourselves up to, to putting something in. Maybe you, you, you sign it for the text and it pops in and you, you're just for, for five minutes, for two minutes. They're short. You're going to stop. And you're going to turn off the radio. And you're going to stop yelling at the people in traffic. And you're going to take a deep breath. And you're going to say, I want to know the truth because the truth will set me free. But i got to be discerning about where that's coming from. And I want to focus on what God has to say to me. I want to focus on what he wants to teach me, me personally. How his spirit makes me discerning and understanding in this walk and in this journey. That's my prayer for you. My prayer in this Lenten season is that you will tune into a whole different way of thinking about your life and yourself and what's happening around you because the world is not falling apart. Okay, parts of the world are falling apart. <laughs> but God brings redemption out of all of it. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You are chosen. God, would you help us? As we close and we sing these powerful words one more time, would you speak into our hearts and lives? Would you speak your truth into who we are and how we're made and your intention for us? We invite you. We seek you. We need you. And so we all collectively at this opening of Lent take a deep breath. We all collectively at the opening of this season invite you. Would you lead us? Would you speak? Would you quiet the anxiety that closes out so many messages of hope and grace? Even in these closing moments, we're going to tune in. We're going to respond to your word. As our prayer counselors move into place, we're reminded that there are places for us to seek more help, to pray, to hear your voice. Make us discerning, we pray, and remind each of us that we are chosen. We pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said together. Amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.